This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Uh, well, welcome back uh, again to our event, the 150th anniversary birthday party of the Academic Senate for our colloquium, uh, symposium. And we have three sessions today, uh, which I think will be really exciting. But we have the pleasure uh, of having some welcoming remarks. Uh, this is a person who obviously has been introduced uh, in many, many different ways from everyone from the President of the United States on down. But in this event, she needs no introduction. So I will simply ask uh, President Janet Napolitano to come up and give us some remarks. Well, good morning, everybody. I hear last night was great. I was sorry to miss it, but uh, it is a pleasure to be here to help kick off uh, a day that I think will be filled with wonderful discussion and reflections on the history and the future of the University of California. Uh, the agenda is uh, packed with interesting speakers and panelists, moderators, all of whom have much to contribute. Uh, to this important conversation and who have already given so much in service to the University of California. So it's wonderful to see today's symposium bring together both experienced scholars and new voices as we mark the university's 150th year. Um, you know, UC sesquicentennial, I had to practice saying that word, you know, try saying it three times in a row. Uh, but has been both a celebration and, and I think a useful exercise. It's provided us the opportunity to look back at the creation of this world-class public university and our uh, opportunity to reaffirm a commitment to nurture and to sustain this institution and its foundational values. It's allowed us to imagine what UC's future can and should be, but I hope today's discussion will do the same for you, to rejuvenate, to re-energize, and inspire you in continuing the effort to make UC, which is a great place, an even greater place. Um, I think uh, uh, it is offset, but it is also true that the University of California is the greatest public research university on the planet, and it has been from the very beginning. And UC's faculty, one dedicated to exceptional teaching and trailblazing research, is at the core of that excellence. The faculty, in a way, is the university. So as we look ahead to the next 150 years, one of the most critical measures of our success will be whether and how the university sustains access and opportunity. Uh, UC alumni Joan Didion once called our institution the most coherent expression of the California possibility. Um, and that, I think, is a great uh, summation. But as she put it, the question is a question of who has access to that California possibility. In the proud tradition of shared governance at UC, the Academic Senate has played and will always play a central role 
in pushing the needle on expanding access, on expanding opportunity for California students. So in that same spirit, we are accelerating our efforts to build an ever more diverse faculty. We know that students thrive academically and professionally when they have access to faculty mentors from similar backgrounds. We want to grow and support the inclusive excellence of UC's faculty, and we are allocating millions of dollars annually to support a range of programs that have been shown to increase faculty diversity. But as I shared with the Academic Senate yesterday, the issue of faculty diversity has to be one that the faculty itself adopts and owns as a value. It is the faculty through the departments and the colleges uh, who hire the faculty. And I cannot emphasize enough how important it is that diversity be a part of that equation. We also have work to do together to continue to advocate for the university, for the needs of our faculty, our students, and staff, and the be- make the best case we can to the, for the needs of our students, of our faculty, our staff, uh, and to make that case to state and federal leaders that an investment in public higher education is the best investment they can possibly make for the state and indeed for the country. As election day nears, it's only a few days away, can't be soon enough, I look forward to working with the next governor of California and starting a new chapter in UC's history, along with the faculty. We all know that education is a fundamental ingredient to the secret sauce that has led to California's success story, which is a story of opportunity and progress. Um, But it is the institutions of higher education in this state that has really propelled it to be the powerhouse that it is. So I want to thank you again for inviting me to share a few words with you this morning and for spending your day thinking about the future of the university. I look forward to our continued work together to uphold UC's mission, our mission of education, of research, of public service, as we serve our students and we serve our state. So in the immortal words of the motto of the University of California, Fiat Lux. Thank you, President Politano. So our first uh, session today is one which um, I think we have, of of them, we're all attached to all of this one in particular, uh, because our keynote speaker is uh, someone who's uh, spent... uh, a long career uh, thinking about, writing about uh, the history and the contemporary situation at UC. And all of our panelists and our moderator were former chairs of the Academic Senate. So for this session, entitled The Evolution of Shared Governance and the Historic and Present Role of the Academic Senate, uh, let me introduce Mary Gilley, Professor of Marketing at UC Irvine and the Chair of the Academic Senate in 2014-15, who will introduce the speakers and the panelists. Thank you. Um, I've already warned all our panelists and, and speakers that it's us that is going to be between 
the audience and lunch, and uh, so they're going to keep on time. Uh, as Robert mentioned, all the panelists have been uh, Academic Senate chairs system-wide, and if you look at their, when they served, uh, the, everyone, it, it spans 25 years. So 25 out of 150 says something. So they have a lot of experience. And I'm going to briefly introduce them and then uh, John, but I first want to, um, we're not going to go in order of the, the program, but um, Dan Simmons is going to talk about the history of SP1 and the role of the Senate. Uh, Shane is going to talk about perennial issues and challenges in the Academic Senate, uh, also known as deja vu all over again. And Amy is going to talk about recommendations for sustaining a strong, successful version of shared governance into the future. So let me introduce John Douglas, who is Re Senior Research Fellow, Center for the Study of Higher Education. Uh, his current research interests are focused on comparative international higher education, including the influence of globalization, uh, the role of universities in economic development, something George touched on last night in terms of the UC, uh, science policy as a part of the national and multinational economic policy, and interestingly enough, the student experience at, um, at major research universities. So he's a prolific writer, and his most recent publication is Approaching a Tipping Point, a History and Prospectus on Funding for the University of California, something we all care deeply about. So let me introduce John. Okay, I have a PowerPoint, so let's see if I can get it up. I do want to say uh, this is really a fantastic gathering of uh, people, uh, many that I know, and uh, it's kind of a unique gathering, I think. I hope there are pictures being taken of everyone. And I also want to uh, thank... Uh, uh, Robert and Shane for all the work they put in, including the staff, UC-wide uh, Academic Senate staff. Uh, it's a lot of work to put these things together, so I'm going to say, let's give them a round of applause. <laughs> all right. I, I'm the resident historian in this, uh, in this game, so I'm going to talk on these themes, and I'm going to try to do it quickly. Uh, one is to talk a little bit about the organizational evolution of the Senate. And I should say that maybe I don't really need to do this because Robert did a pretty good job last night in about three minutes. <laughs> He's kind of just got it all right there, so I don't know. But I, I'll add a little nuance to it, and some of it you all know. But then I'll do a little, just very briefly, a listing of uh, controversies and tests of the Senate model. A little bit about planning for the future because at one point, much more so than I think in the present a day, for a lot of reasons, the Senate was really critical uh, for the development of the multi-campus system, uh, in the 19, particularly in the 1950s and in the early 60s. Significant work was done by the Senate that really made what you see is today to a large degree. And then uh, just a brief muse on some key issues. So one thing I just want to say as a kind of an opening observation is past presidents uh, many that you know, whether it be a Mr. Sproul or a Mr. Kerr, um, have said or have lo looked and cited three general reasons for UC's ascendancy to being really one of the world's, if not the world's, premier public university. One is its achievement of autonomy, which did not occur at the outset, but came in the 1870s. Um, another is 
consistent workload funding by the state of California, which is an advent that occurred uh, beginning in 1911, not before, uh, and that was obviously hugely important. And then, of course, the, the role of the academic senate uh, and the general model of shared governance that has come out of, out of that uh, uh, recognition of the Senate's role in the overall management of the university. And so um, <clears throat> I do want to say also that uh, there are things that we kind of all know, I guess, and that is that the Senate really has been the primary reason for the university's quality in teaching, research, and public service missions, and we can talk all about why and how that's occurred over time. But the other thing I want to emphasize is, uh, and others have noted this over time, is how important the Senate has been to really give co a cohesive understanding of the university's reason to exist. Um, it is a place in which the larger issues of the university are constantly being discussed and, and debated, and it's done by multiple different faculties. They have a chance to, the historian meets with the physicist and the engineer, and they talk about issues of whether there should be a new uh, uh, school of architecture in one school or another or uh, other kinds of issues. And that is really, you know, one of the most important binding aspects of the university, um, really more so than any other thing I could think of. So that's really just my opening little observations. So now a little bit about the evolution of the university. So many of you know that uh, the University of California is a land-grant institution. The, the Morrill Act was passed in 1862, and the only reason it passed was because there was a civil war on, <laughs> because the South and the representatives from the South had fought multiple uh, uh, proposals of a similar like from Justin Morrill uh, and uh, support by others to provide land in largely the West that could be sold uh, and uh, passed on to development of state uh, universities or other institutions. Uh, and this is a model that actually goes back to the Northwest Ordinance Act that to promote schools in the Northeast at one time earlier in the colonial era. But in any case, uh, uh, the, uh, California got 150 acres. Uh, unfortunately, it was very slow in trying to get those <laughs> that, that acreage. And another thing that's very important to understand about the model of the American university is that from the get-go of this public university con concept, it had very practical aspects that it needed to include, including uh, agriculture, a college of agriculture, and uh, mechanical arts, which is really engineering, uh, also military service, other kinds of things that related uh, to uh, 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 tying these institutions to uh, local economic uh, needs and, and national needs as well. So, uh, uh, but there's a bit of a bumpy road. <laughs> uh, first of all, of course, there is the, uh, the 1864 uh, acceptance, a formal acceptance by the California legislature uh, to take on these, this land to create a university, but there was no real consensus as to what it should be. Um, a group was asked uh, that included uh, John Sweat, who maybe you know this name. John Sweat was really a very important and um, progressive uh, superintendent of public instruction, uh, the founder really of uh, what became CSU in terms of uh, creating normal schools or teacher colleges, which became San Jose State at one point later on. And then jo uh, uh, Josiah Whitney, which is who was head of the U.S. Geological Survey in the West, a uh, very important person. Well, they did a study, and they said really what California needs is a polytechnic, a, a very vocational-oriented institution uh, to meet the needs of the state of California. And in fact, 
there is actually, one could say maybe the University of California is 152 years old (laughs) because the first act, Organic Act, was passed in 1866, and the reason partly for that was they needed to have an act in order to actually get the money, to get the land uh, from uh, from the federal government. And if you don't know how this worked, basically you got the 150 acres, and then the uh, legislature or whatever university was uh, established was to then sell that land to create an endowment to pay for the university. That was the the model. So finally, though, in 1868 a compromise was made to absorb the uh, College of California here in downtown Oakland, and that it should not just be a polytechnic, that it should be a comprehensive university in that term that they understood in that period. And it created, of course, uh, the Board of Regents. Now, notice on this group of, of, on the Board of Regents, that there's no faculty. Now, that's the common lay board structure that was found in other states <clears throat> and uh, the Organic Act very much reflects uh, a number of other states that had already created uh, state institutions, including Michigan. And Michigan's a bit very, actually very influential in the early development of the structure of the University of California. So, uh, now, uh, but the one thing that is very important to remember is that in the charter itself, um, the Academic Senate is uh, identified as an entity that should be created, consisting of faculty and deans, presided over the president, and created for the purpose of conducting the general administration of the university. Now, this is an era in which there are just not that many administrators. (laughs) I have a very interesting chart later on related to this. So, so in any case, uh, 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 this... You know, the, the regents really in that era and into, into about 1900 uh, were very mac- micro-management with the president. As, you know, the University of California actually was a very struggling institution in these early parts of its, of its uh, development. Uh, they thought at one time, for example, that land grants would be enough to uh, fund the university in perpetuity, which is a foolish thought, uh, and it was not true at all. And very quickly, uh, the university um, became... Um, very underfunded and growing in population because if there's any one thing to remember about California, it is constant population growth, which adds an important element to UC's history because it isn't just about UC being a top institution. It's that it has grown with the state's population and it has strove, as our president has noted, uh, to be open uh, and broadly accessible. And there's a whole story that relates to that, but I won't get into that. Now, the next thing I just want to say briefly is um, uh, is uh, how UC got its autonomy. Now, uh, it didn't happen in 1868, and this is obviously an important uh, juncture for the University of California. The 1870s are an extremely uh, turbulent period of, uh, of, of um, uh, depression uh, and uh, um, drought and uh, the rise of the... Uh, monopolies in transportation, which included a very important person I want you to remember. His name is Leland Stanford. (laughs) And I'll only say this. I don't know many people don't know this. Leland Stanford was this close to giving all his money to Berkeley. And there's a whole story related to that, related to the politics between Democrats and Republicans in the state of California. We won't go down that road, but it is robber baron money. That's all I want you to know. (laughs) 
So, so this is a very difficult period. There's obviously the monopolies. There's also race riots in San Francisco. Uh, uh, just a whole terrible story. We know that you know Mr. Kearney. Perhaps you've been on Kearney Street um, in San Francisco. Uh, was a, a demagogue of that period. And then uh, the fighting and biting that came in this also was that the farmers uh, in, the gra- in the form of the Grange did not see the university really developing its agricultural programs. I think it was a misunderstanding to some degree, but the university was really underfunded. Now, there's a whole story with that. But there were major attacks by the Grange and also the Mechanics uh, Union uh, that related to Kearney and others, uh, the Working Man's Party, I should say, uh, that the university wasn't doing its job and there were attacks and it should be a polytechnic. And this led to the second president of the University of California, uh, Daniel Quick Gilman, to leave and go, what? Found a new university. What was it? Johns Hopkins wow. University, yes. So uh, he, he gave a good fight, but then just said, this is impossible to do anything here in California. Uh, eventually, though, this burbles down uh, the university does survive these attacks, and it burbles down to the second constitutional uh, convention of California. We only have two of them, and that's why we have one of the longest constitutions in, uh, in the union. And uh, this led to a series of very interesting uh, political movements uh, by uh, regents and a, a one or two, I think, uh, two uh, alumni from, from Berkeley, obviously very young at that time, uh, 1879, and this leads to a backroom deal that gives the university its status as a public trust in the Constitution. And the only way to really say it briefly is that it's really because uh, the convention itself, after many very difficult uh, uh, parliamentary maneuvers, had less faith in the legislature uh, uh, and its control of the university. Uh, You know, that was a, it was just felt that the legislature was not to be trusted. (laughs) And so that's partly the reason it also did mimic uh, the University of Michigan had a similar status, but ar- arguably the University of California has a much more defined uh, stat- uh, level of autonomy. So now the next period I just want to say quickly is uh, Benjamin Ida Wheeler and the uh, Berkeley Revolution. The university, as we know it, really begins to mature and become something we can recognize uh, in this period. And um, uh, uh, Wheeler comes from uh, uh, Cornell and he is uh, well-linked. He knows uh, the president uh, uh, of the United States, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, and uh, he ma- makes a deal and says, okay, we're going to really boost this institution. We're going to try to figure out ways to fund it. We're going to grow with it. The population is growing. Remember, it's always growing. And so here is a listing of some of the things that occurred in that period. I won't go through them all, but the enrollment growth was really significant, making the University of California uh, the largest university in the United States, uh, uh, management reform is very significant. And this reflects to some degree uh, Wheeler's uh, experience as a PhD student in Heidelberg and his links with uh, German higher education, uh, the development of the graduate division, uh, 20 new academic departments. Um, we can go down uh, development of lower and upper division courses and why in order to help promote and develop the development of the junior college, which becomes a community college. The AA degree is actually invented on the Berkeley campus. It's you know, what we now know, and it's used internationally in various forms. And uh, the beginning of the transfer function occurs, uh, uh, which is really significant uh, to justify why the state of California should fund a, uh, 
a, a elite, semi-elite uh, selective institution. Um, but the things I want to just kind of look at again is the big developments related to, to our discussion is the elevation of, the, of research in faculty hiring and promotion and the development, for example, of a new research fund that the, uh, the Senate would oversee, uh, also that the, the Senate would oversee UC Press. That was created in the 1890s, but is a root uh, pathway to uh, publish uh, uh, faculty research. Uh, workload funding, 1911, I already noted that, and I don't think there's any doubt, at least historically, without workload funding, and this was an innovation, the university wouldn't have had the incentive to grow with the state of California and its population and needs, and we'd be a very different place if that was the case, because there would probably be a different public university in Los Angeles, for example, that was not called UCLA. Um, and so uh, these are just some of the things uh, I wanted to note. But there's a waning of Wheeler's um, power and authority, which relate partly to his sympathies uh, for, for Germany uh, during World War uh, I. Uh, he has health problems. There's a lot of chaos uh, near the end of his reign in 1919. Uh, you know, a spectacular history, but the end is rather a burning one. There's a famous story that he would go around on his horse and tell... Uh, uh, faculty who didn't have a hat on to get a hat on right away. So. <laughs> you probably heard that one. But uh, so, but and this is also in alignment with the development of the American Association of, Association of Universities Professors in 1915. If you're a little bit aware of that, that's uh, there were Berkeley faculty that were engaged with that, and that's a very important development uh, that relates to, to the Carnegie funding of uh, pensions for faculty and things of that nature but also the rights of faculty. And so uh, uh, the, the, the regents react to Wheeler's problems, and the Senate also proposes a rather unusual path. They say, okay, you know, what we need to do is in this interim period, uh, we need to create a, a board of uh, three faculty members who will be appointed as dean who will run the university. Well, that's not a good idea. It didn't work well. It's only about a year and then we call that the interregnum, or I call it that. And, and that leads to a solution. One is eventually the uh, appointment of David Barrows as president of the University of California, which is a mixed story, but uh, generally it was good to have a president. You need a president. And uh, James Moffat, Moffat Library, you know this name perhaps, on the Berkeley campus, uh, worked with the Senate and came forth with the, what is now the standing orders of the regents, or the first aspect of it is pretty much the same. Uh, in 1920, uh, and really for the first time, and in a way, this is not replicated in any other university that I'm aware of, the level of openness about what is the responsibility of the faculty, that it's in various codes, like the bylaws of the Senate, for example, much more complex than any other institution. It's really a significant shift. And these are the things that the Senate was given authority for in that era, They'd already really had all of the responsibilities for setting the conditions of admissions and requirements for degrees and certificates. But of course, um, they did, this is in the ad uh, uh, element, advise the president on appointments, um, uh, demo promotions, demotions, dismissals, advise the president regarding changes in the educational policy of the university. So this is interpretive, right? Some of this, obviously. <laughs> advise the president on budget issues. That's actually a little later. Uh, 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 development, I think. But in any case, the most important one, well, not the most important, but one to keep in mind is the right of the Senate to organize itself. 
And I am not aware of any other university that has that open statement. Uh, and that is very crucial because it's not a beast or body of the president or a chancellor. It is of the Senate itself. And so it develops and structures. Now, ultimately, the regents are responsible for everything. I was going to say that this podium is owned by the regents, but we're not on a campus. I mean, <laughs> so I can't say that. But if you are, wherever you are, they own every almost the air you breathe. So, and that's why. But that's something that'd be good. That can be good if you get sued, I'll tell you. So, so now the other thing I want to note is the development of the one university model and how it affects the Senate. Um, I won't get into all of this, but the most important thing is in 1832, okay, so UCLA becomes a part of the University of California, making UC the first real multi-campus system. And it's a slow process. I don't mean it was like that. In 1919, uh, what was um, the normal school in Los Angeles, which was a public institution, is absorbed into becoming part of the University of California. And an ongoing fight early on, a lot of the Berkeley people did not want to have a competitor for money or prestige or any of that. And remind you, Los Angeles was already much larger in population than San Francisco by this period. So the power swing is changing. Uh, so uh, with that concept, okay, we're going to have a campus in Los Angeles, they needed to rethink about the Senate structure. And so in 1932, they developed the concept of a northern and southern section of the, of the Senate. Now, also remind you that we have uh, various activities going on in various parts of the state, which is another great story of UC. Uh, you have Dave, the research stations at Davis, uh, Riverside, and uh, La Jolla uh, that were all developed during Wheeler's time. And uh, so this was a way of developing the Senate's overview. Um, and the other thing that occurred was there's a lot of debate about how should the University of California develop over time. And Sproul proposed uh, uh, um, that there be a federation model. He wanted to retain power over all things that were going on at UC, so that relates to it. But he really conceptualized the idea of a one-university structure if we were to grow geographically, if that's the case, that was still not completely determined, uh, then we needed to have uh, a conceptual model that would unite the institution, obviously with the president being the head of it, but also where's the Senate in this. So, and the other thing I should note is that decisive change really comes about geographic uh, growth of UC, that there need to be campuses with, grow with the population. That was not an accepted idea until 1944, when really Santa Barbara was forced on the University of California um, by uh, uh, a number of people with some support by an, a person named Earl Warren. And so uh, uh, that was a, a really critical juncture to this conceptual idea of the one university model. And I should say, I know I, I saw Pat Pelfrey here who wrote a really interesting paper about the one university model. She's sitting over there. It's all on the center's website. I hope you can find it. Uh, we have lots of interesting papers. Um, so what is the university, one university model? Well, this is just a synopsis. One is it's a single board. Yes, of course. The system has one president. The Senate is a representative body uh, under a divisional federated structure. Uh, the, the president acts as, the, I like to say, the planner-in-chief of the system and many other things, uh, but also uh, really the single person to represent the university in Sacramento. That is very different than a lot of other systems or the this changes the nature of what it's to be a chancellor in the UC system than uh, opposed to a president of many other public universities. 
a, a commitment to a multi-campus system with each campus having the same mission in related to teaching, uh, research, and public service, and claim on state funding. Obviously, there's a lot of fighting about that over time, but generally it's true. Uh, shared academic personnel policies. This is always uh, a, a, an area which outside viewers are very puzzled by, <laughs> but it is actually one of the things that really does create coherency. Uh, shared admit admissions policies. Uh, and shared tuition and financial aid policies. So that's just a synopsis. Uh, the, the one university model in the Senate, well, obviously there's a lot of tension and things going on. Uh, I'm sorry, I did say divisional before. It was still the northern and southern section. But the pressure uh, changes with the development of new campuses. Um, and the dates shown here are when the regents decided to create those campuses. If you notice, they're all before 1960 except for one. I just want to note that because people tend to think the master plan was the ultimate planning for all the campuses when actually a, a report in 1957, a joint report between the regents and the State Board of Education was really the leading uh, planning uh, uh, document for the development of new campuses. Um, so in 1960, uh, the uh, a special committee of the Senate was formulated to rethink about the Senate from the northern uh, southern section. Uh, and another thing that's very important, which I'll come back to really quickly, is uh, these uh, uh, all-university faculty conferences. So we're kind of reflecting a little bit here uh, that were really crucial in the development, not only of the Senate structure, but how the university would grow over time. And these are kind of some forgotten by some, I think, about how important they were and how they integrated and gave guidance to the president and the uh, regents as to how to develop the system. And so out of that, uh, 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 1963 reorganization uh, study, again, this is by the Senate because they are the ones who decide how to organize the Senate. They would create an academic assembly, there would be campus divisions, and the ca academic council, which is an old name that goes back and forth in different meanings, would be the executive body. So this is all you know, you know the structure. So now I'll go quickly into just a listing. I'm not going to really talk a lot about controversies and tests of the model. So on the one side, I'm going to show or just say, you know, that the loyalty oath is probably something you're aware of, uh, which is very significant. We could probably go back to earlier <laughs> conundrums, but this one is one of the most significant uh, in the post-World World War II uh, era. And again, it leads to eventually, it is one of the factors that leads to a more formal understanding of tenure within the University of California. I'm not going to talk too much about that, but also obviously we've got the free speech movement and the firing of Clark Kerr, which is a whole series of things. Well, you know, where was the Senate in that? Well, it is in integrated, but it's, a difficult, it's difficult. The Senate has a hard time with these very controversial issues, the Vietnam protests. Uh, uh, that, uh, I will say part of that led eventually to a change in the uh, Board of Regents uh, uh, membership in 1974, kind of an part of the part of the effect of the Vietnam protests and riots that occurred in Santa Barbara and other places uh, was that uh, the concept that well the regents should have more representation from faculty and from students. And I'll come back on the faculty side because there's an interesting issue related to uh, their membership on the board. Uh, divestment SP1. I know that Dan will talk about that. Um, so. Uh, uh, then things that relate to, I think, where the university, where the Senate actually was very important in dealing with the budget uh, side, at least some of these eras, uh, the Depression, 
the austerities of the 70s, which was really a lot about no capital construction. We went through a period where there was very little capital construction funded by the state of California, and it really hurt us. Uh, we had a big pickup in the 80s, but it was a, a real problem. Uh, the, inter uh, the Senate was very involved with the VEROP, this early retirement program in the early recession, and the, I mean, this recession of the early 1990s. So um, now I just want to return to this concept. Oh, I did say at the end, planning uh, the future of the university, uh, past and future question mark, but uh, this is just a listing of some of the all university conferences. They were often held at Davis, sometimes at Sillimar. Um, uh, they would have very interesting top topics. They would have uh, papers that were produced, policy papers that were produced that would look at issues about lower to upper division students, whether the university, how the university should grow in terms of new campuses, including uh, you know what the, the campus of La Jolla should be. It had various other names before it became UC San Diego. It was supposed to be a science and tech campus. Um, and these are really pivotal, and they're really significant. You can, you can find them. Very significant and interesting. Everything about student-faculty ratios and uh, just really detailed and excellent work in that period. Of course, again, this is a period in which uh, administrative staff was not what it is today. We didn't have institutional research uh, capabilities that we have today, uh, and the scale is very different. So um, I just wanted to note those are very interesting and I think very positive uh, 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 examples of where the Senate was pivotal in long-term thinking about the university, and I only hope the Senate will try to do these kinds of things again. I'm not sure how much it's doing now. That's my viewpoint. Okay, so now I'm near the end. A brief muse. Uh, what are the positives of the Senate structure? Well, it really is an unparalleled system of faculty engagement in university management. I think it's pretty clear. There's, you know, it's constantly held up as the kind of the um, idealistic way to do something, although very few universities do it <laughs> in the in the range and, and scope that is done at UC. At the campus and UC-wide level, again, uh, as I said before, means for quality control. It really is the primary form of accountability and internal accountability and uh, quality control in our mission of learning, of teaching, research, and public service. And as I said, historical role in the, in the long-term coherence of UC. Now, there are some negatives, aren't there? There are some negatives. Slow and purposely deliberative, often maddening for certain administrators, uh, academic administrators, I might, mind you, or others. And it's very complex, and I think we also heard a little bit yesterday about how difficult it is sometimes for somebody from the outside to come in and try to understand this place and do well. But that's, you know, I don't, uh, you could say that probably if you went to MIT or something, but there is something about UC that has its own particular um, complications. Uh, less or not very effective with politically divisive issues. And I'll leave that a little bit to Dan on that side. The SP1 was very difficult for the Senate really to be engaged in a meaningful way. Uh, but it also relates to kind of the complexity of the university and where power lies now compared to, say, 40 years ago. Uh, hierarchical and dependent on faculty morale and interest in shared governance, uh, and also dependent on UC's administration's interest in shared governance and understanding of it. So, you know, those uh, things are, uh, we have to worry about, uh, how much engagement we're really getting from faculty, uh, younger and older. And, in fact, I think most places discourage younger faculty to being engaged in the Senate because they're supposed to focus on tenure and uh, uh, and research production and these kinds of things. So 
uh, that's a, you know, in the modern era, a more relatively new uh, thing. But in any case, so core topical issues facing UC, I'll just say, you know, they're the kind of the normal uh, things that you know, uh, declining core funding, uh, which relates to rising student-to-faculty ratios, uh, challenges for remaining competitive for graduate students and hiring faculty, and I will do a little plug uh, for uh, a paper that was noted uh, that I did with Zach Bleemer recently that looks at historically at the budget of UC and then uh, doesn't put a determinants as what should be done, but outlines a range of options that UC may look at for funding. But in any case, one issue is really important is student-to-faculty ratios. University devolution, and that is that there's this uh, kind of decline in the uh, revenue sharing. There's less revenue or different kinds of revenue. That's part of it. But uh, we're finding more uh, profit centers and loss centers, and uh, this is changing the dynamic. It's also an erosion of the faculty ladder to some degree, which has really been an important part of UC's development over time. Uh, obviously, rising pension and health costs, uh, concerns about declining benefits. Uh, uh, faculty are more and more managers of learning and research, and that is also a very complex change that's going on. It's been going on a long time, but it's become even more so, especially as uh, faculty to student ratios go up. You actually look at, you know, what is the, the, the legislature or the LEO always ask, well, what's the workload? How, much, how many courses are they teaching? Well, the other question is, how many students are they teaching? And the uh, credit hours are way up. So there's other aspects to look at this, and it really is becoming heavily, um, when you have these large, large class, classes, a management issue. Technology, I think there's a lot of opportunities, but also challenges, and we won't go into all of those on online ed. But the other thing, finally, is to say scale. This is a big, I don't know how, I can't conceptualize it completely. If it means, that, and I leave this to the panel, does scale mean that the Senate has to rethink itself somewhat, or the university? And so... <clears throat> One, you kind of know this story of overall growth uh, of, uh, of uh, undergraduates. And again, we are relatively small in the number of graduate students we have for a premier university to have 25, was it 26 or 8 percent of our, of our students as graduate students. It's very low for a top research university. And it, I don't know if it really matches uh, the needs of the state of California. That's at least we've argued that. The university has argued that before in the previous enrollment plan that was done that we needed to grow in graduate education. That one is not a theme that we hear anymore because we're coping with undergraduates. <clears throat> the other is um, the increase in the percentage of, uh, of instructors and lecturers as part of our, t uh, our core teaching staff. So you can see that those two lines coming together, and that's changing the dynamic of what it is to be a university, and I think we also have to think about what it means to be a Senate member. Another is the shift and change in administrators. So this um, simply shows it's not, you know, it's selected years, okay? <clears throat> and it gives you the sense of the relative size of uh, the office of the president versus the campus administration versus faculty, all academic personnel, and that includes medical. So there's, there's a bit of a... A jump related to the UC faculty. I mean, we could talk about that as to how you wanted to look at it. But it gives you a sense of that scale and difference. That means there's a lot of difference in where decisions are being made, where money is flowing, what kind of services we're doing. Obviously, the university of today is very different than it was 50, 60 years ago. We do many more things. We have much more complicated uh, social responsibilities. Okay, so finally, 
a brief news, and I've kind of said some of them already, uh, and this does relate again to the paper, uh, to this report that we generated uh, at the center and all through, also through the Goldman School, which we're part of, of public policy, to grow or not to grow for the Senate. They have to be engaged in this discussion or how to grow and by how much. And uh, some have already discussed this, and I, George Blumenthal talked about this yesterday, last night. Um, I noted before, what is the future composition of the faculty and their engagement in shared governance? Uh, this decline in a ranked faculty, maybe we need to think a little bit about what it means to be a Senate member. Uh, the Senate's relationship with the regents and the president, obviously, and the chancellors. Um, I noted in 1974 that the faculty were given an, uh, a, um, a membership on the board uh, before they were, didn't have formal membership. <clears throat> and the concept was, and they were offered also the right to vote, uh, just as the student regent has the right to vote. And it was a conscious decision after much debate that the, that the faculty members within the Senate should not ha have a vote because of the structure of the Senate is so, um, it isn't like the council chair is the president of the Senate or an independent leader. They are representative of a very broad and, um, uh, uh, and, and dispersed power structure within the Senate. They're more like cheerleaders part of the time than, or organizers than they are a voice of the Senate, like a union member or something of that nature. So they thought that it would, be, it would compromise the Senate if they had a vote, that there would be a difficult situation like SP1, and there would be pressure on this person to vote this way or that, and that that didn't fit. So that, I think, was a logical decision. I just asked the question, is it still a logical decision? <clears throat> um, uh, status and role of the Senate... Um, once again, playing a determining and defining role in meeting UC's challenges. I've already said that. So then the question is, is it fit for purpose? So final thoughts? And I'm at least kind of trying to prep this a little bit to see if, the, if our panel members will talk about it, but they'll talk about whatever they want to talk about. So in 1961, at the discussion, again, of the All-User University Conference, in which the president, Robert Gordon Sproul, was a key player all the time, and he, the record on him is really significant. Uh, in terms of his ability to, I mean, he had, he had his negatives. <laughs> but he really knew and understood the role of the faculty to make this place operate. But So he really convened the first one with the Senate members. But <clears throat> in 1961, the All-University Faculty Conference noted the fear of anarchy was seen in the major, you know, confronting the university as it grew in campuses and, uh, and autonomy, or I should say the campuses, what level of autonomy the campus used to have. Um, and again, in that event, it was reiterated that uh, uh, the university-wide Senate was the means of preserving a common policy and uniform standards for the university. I said that before, and I just wanted to show that quote. And then <clears throat> I want to note something that, we, uh, that Robert Gordon Sproul uh, stated in his memoirs. No function of the university president or chancellor, that's my quote, <laughs> is more important than maintaining close relationships with the faculty. Um, the Senate, Sproul remarked, became more important as the university grew in size and in the complexity of its role in society. Without strong faculty in, uh, input, opinions, and advice, quote, the titular head of the organization often suffer, suffers from something like oxygen starvation 
with such characteristic symptoms as failing vision, a gait slowly down to a shamble, and weaving from side to side with little forward motion. Now, he wrote that after he retired. So my final thing I just want to note is how difficult it is sometimes to run a big place like the University of California, and how, how difficult it can be if you do not or the challenges that are presented if you do not engage with the faculty and the Senate specifically <clears throat> up front on major issues, such as <clears throat> the logo. <laughs> so with that, I am finished. Thank you. Thank you, John. That, that uh, certainly gave our panel a lot of food for, for thought and the, everyone in the audience. I'm a little concerned that Janet is now going to ride on a horse and tell us all to wear hats. So don't get any ideas, Janet. I could use hats. Yeah, <laughs> come on up, panel. Okay, because well, we're going in order. Um, as John mentioned, uh, Dan Simmons is going to be first, and he's going to be talking about uh, his experience with SP1. And uh, Shane is going to follow with the perennial issues and challenges of the Senate. And again, Amy is going to focus on recommendations for sustaining strong and successful version of shared governance into the future. So I'll ha have each of them speak, and then we'll open it up for questions. Dan. Thanks, Mary. Thank you, John, for a great set of remarks. Um, I'm supposed to talk about SB1, but last night I decided that more important than an old guy telling an old story, um, I wanted to comment about a question that was asked last night, that issue about quality and when did the regents uh, back away from considering quality. And I think that's always been a problem. You know, I mean, I can attest that it sort of goes back into the 90s. You know, quality is a difficult issue, but I think it's the key to demands for access because why should we be concerned about access if we can't provide a high-quality education program? Um, and, you know, quality to me is the critical function of the academic senate. In my 95 paper, I tried to make the point that all of the delegations to the Senate are focused on the maintenance of quality, the maintenance of quality of the faculty by setting the standards for membership in the academic Senate, the quality of the students through our admissions policy, the quality of our educational program by our authority over courses and curriculum and degree requirements. Indeed, I think affirmative action, as it has been justified by the need to maintain diversity, is a matter of quality. It's quality of our faculty and students because it affects the quality of our research and teaching and discourse that includes a diversity of ideas and approaches. A bit of an editorial. I think that in all of that, we have to be careful not to confuse safe with a reluctance to face emotional discomfort from the diversity of different ideas, cultures, 
historic and, and current beliefs um, and ideas that we might find challenging and even repugnant. The high quality of discourse requires that we face uncomfortable ideas head on and not look away or not lock them away in so-called safe places. I think that in all of these things, it is the responsibility of the Senate to insist on high quality in everything we do. I also something uh, respond to something that John said. I think the other really important issue for the Senate going forward is maintaining the one university concept, which requires strength in the office of the president, which we've backed away from. It requires system-wide strength in the academic senate to maintain one University of California. Okay, old guy stories about SB1. <laughs> you, you know, to my great horror, I realized the other day that that was 23 years ago. Um, which is part of the old guy business, I guess. But for me, some of the memories are really clear. Um, and, and I think the story has not been correctly told because it hasn't been told very much by people who were there. Um, in the end, I think there's two things about SB1 uh, that are important to keep in mind. In the end, it was largely a political decision. And secondly... If there was a failure of shared governance in that decision, it was because a small majority of the regents rejected the position of the academic senate, rejected the position of the president, rejected the position of the council of chair, uh, chancellors, and many others through the university. But also be clear, they had the authority to do that because the regents have the authority to operate the University of California. For the Senate, there's a lesson in how difficult it is for the Senate to engage faculty in advance of an important issue. And then for the Senate, how to deal with faculty who later come out of the woodwork to complain that shared governance failed because of a decision that they disagreed with. Um, you, you know, one of the advantages of the, of the Academic Council is that we get to operate in the background. Our meetings are pretty much private. We're not exposed to the press. And that gives us the wonderful freedom to have open debate and discourse. There is no place in the University of California that I've encountered, uh, including a stint in, in a brief stint in, in the administration of uh, the office of the president, where there is such well-formed, hard debate about the important issues of the university. And that debate then gets carried in to the Board of Regents who are uh, faculty representatives on the board. It gets carried to the president, which is another reason we need a strong president uh, and a strong administration in the office of the president. Um, so in 1994-95, um, my then vice chair and myself, Arnie Lyman, and I went to uh, every campus and met with the executive councils on the campus. We met with representative assemblies or in open meetings with faculty. I think that we might have been, to my knowledge, the first chair and vice chair uh, to do that. In every one of those meetings in 94-95, we raised the issue of affirmative action and Regent Connerly's uh, pending proposals. 
The Berkeley meeting was particularly significant because many of the old Senate leadership at Berkeley at that time opposed affirmative action. Uh, and that became kind of clear at that session. That same year, along with Arnie, and I'm pretty sure Arnie was there because he and I did everything one with the other um, through that period, just as Harry Pohl and I did everything one with the other um, during, my, d during um, Harry's term as chair. We met with the Affirmative Action Committee at UC Berkeley. And the debate there was whether or not we should have a system-wide memorial on affirmative action. There was a very strong feeling in that committee that if we did that, we may well lose it. Uh, and so there was a real reluctance to do that. One of my real regrets about that term is maybe we should have gone ahead with the memorial because it would have been the democratic way to go about it. And I'm not sure what the cost would have been. Uh, for the university or for affirmative action if we'd had that debate. So what we did as an alternative was drafted a resolution supporting affirmative action that was approved by the executive council of all nine divisions, adopted by the academic council, and duly reported to the regents uh, and particularly stressed in my various remarks to the board of regents during that year. But nonetheless, after the vote in uh, July, so, so, I mean, the point of that is that there was definitely consultation with the Senate and the president, with the regents during the course of 1994-95 when those, um, when, when Regent Connerly's resolutions were pending during the year. After the vote in July, um, there was launched by many of the same UC Berkeley faculty who questioned the support of affirmative action that the whole thing was a failure of sheer governance. And uh, Arnie Lyman as chair and Duncan Melichamp as vice chair had to deal with that issue um, extensively during the following year. And of course, immediately Boers went to work on uh, revising our admissions policies which ultimately led to the great work of Bill Jacobs and Michael Brown and, and Sylvia and, 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 uh, and others in um, crafting our current admissions policies. I compare that with um, what, what transpired during the 2009-2010 debates over post-employment benefits. Um, Again, Harry as chair and, and me as vice chair um, visited every campus to discuss the issue. I think there were two big differences. Uh, one, the faculty and staff in, were, were highly interested because of a perceived direct financial interest in the issue. And secondly, the result was consistent with uh, Senate recommendations. Um, Harry and I also traveled that year again to all of the campuses on several fora uh, with administrators uh, to talk about, uh, and, and really those meetings were a debate, principally between Harry and me and, 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 and uh, administrators who were participating in that. I mean, Gary well remembers those uh, highly tense discussions uh, on all of the campuses. Um, 
ultimately what happened was President Yugroff recognized the, dev- the value of the defined benefit plan uh, and its importance to the long-term quality of the uh, faculty of the University of California. You know, and it was really pretty significant because he really put quality before money saving. And I think that that was significant in the presence of huge pressures from administrators in the hospital system and others at OP uh, wanting to save uh, money in the need to finance the deficits in um, the, the unfunded liabilities in the plan. Also in the face of pressure from state politicians, and a number of regions. So I guess you can kind of say about my two terms as chair of the Senate, win one, lose one. Uh, I also, uh, um, you know, it's important to recognize that SB 1 and 2 really were political decisions. And I haven't told this story to too many people, but I think enough time has passed. Um, Shortly before the vote, I, and I'm pretty sure Arnie must have been with me, we met with President Peltison, who had been polling the regions. He'd been having a lot of conversations with the regions about uh, what they were thinking. I believe that he was convinced, and I was convinced, that the regions would vote against SB1 and SB2 on the grounds that because this thing was pending before the voters the following November, it wasn't a good idea at all to put the University of California out front on the issue. And then one morning, I went out into the driveway and I picked up the newspaper and the headline said, Jesse Jackson coming to the Regents meeting. And my immediate reaction was, oh shit, we've lost it. Because Jesse Jackson was named at that time as a potential presidential candidate, as was Pete Wilson, the governor of California. And so Governor Wilson had to pull his people uh, in line and um, support him on SB1. Ellen uh, asked me today, and I don't remember whether Gray Davis was at that meeting, but I do remember sitting directly across the table. A big difference between the regions today and the regions then, we sat around an oval table so that there was discourse and conversation and debate amongst the regions, as opposed to today, you know, when they're on this um, U-shaped thing and they are performing rather than uh, really debating in the course of regents' meeting. Of course, that debate goes on behind uh, the scenes, but uh, I I think it's one of the biggest differences that I see in uh, what goes on. In any event... um, you know, the, the, the political nature of that debate, as it became a political debate, uh, really changed the issue. I've got a lot of other stories about that day that aren't really relevant to the um, work of the Senate, but maybe later in breaks and stuff we can share some of those, including the story of discovering the f- real value of tenure. Um, <laughs> but that's what I have to say. Finally... Uh, as I look around this room and see lots and lots of old friends, I say thank you to every one of you for your very important work in protecting this wonderful institution that we all have the good fortune to be a part of. Thanks for your attention.
how can I possibly follow Dan? Easily. Easily, he says. I want to know what thing he perpetrated that led him to understand the value of uh, Dan here. I'll tell you the story. Um, but I'm going to talk about perennial issues the way shared governance has functioned or maybe hasn't functioned well with some perennial issues. So the University of California owes its preeminence to a robust system of shared governance among the three branches of its leadership. Its constitutional autonomy, it being a public trust with a clearly defined and differentiated mission, it being a single one university with a federated multi-campus system, and its historical, historical receipt of core state funding. These foundation stones are not separate, but they're intertwined with its endeavors every day. The regent's delegation of authority to the Senate imposes great responsibility upon the Senate to act in the best interest of the whole of the University of California and for the good of the people. It's not a right, it's a responsibility. Examination of Senate reports and shared governance going back the last 20 years or so, and maybe much longer, shows that old issues recur again and again and again. Admissions policies, transfer student initiatives, research funding, uh, depending on the state of institutional, state and national policies, scholarly communications, status of UC Press, now open access. We should expect such areas to be an unending state of evolution and to be constantly revising our policies. There have also been recurring areas where complaints from the Senate about the process of shared governance have repeatedly arisen, typically fate accompli being opposed upon the university. From 2004, difficulties most noticeably when UCOP administration promulgated new policies without prior consultation. A decade later, UCPB expressing the committee's dismay that it has rarely been consulted during the past academic year on any policy connected with the UC budget. University responses to emergent legislation often lack uh, Senate consultation. Interactions between the university and the state government, of course, purview of the president have also often lacked uh, Senate consultation, maybe most notoriously uh, the Committee of Two. UCLP reorganizations, the 2008 Monitor Report uh, and uh, the 2018 Huron Report. Um, the Senate's maybe more reasonable or more logical plan for addressing the restructuring uh, uh, received very, very uh, little traction. Searchers for senior administrators, and of course, vice presidents are members of the Senate, have often occurred without Senate inclusion. Uh, presidential initiatives in the areas, uh, particularly those pertaining to Senate responsibilities. So these are areas that over the decades, multiple decades, uh, come up again and again uh, as issues of complaint uh, by the Senate. Another set of issues resurface and undergo relitigation or restart. Uh, the faculty salary gap. The Senate is immensely grateful for the current, current solid start and multi-year plan. But of course, there have been the many 
uh, we hope and believe that this one will be carried through. The task force to end all task forces, post-employment benefits task force. Uh, and there are many survivors uh, of that in this room and on the podium. Um, it has been relitigated twice. Uh, we've had the ROTF. Uh, uh, we've had the uh, uh, current retiree health tiger task force. So is this uh, a symptom of institutional lack of commitment or lack of institutional commitment to the employee? Or is it that these issues uh, are changing? Um, or did we not get it right uh, previously? Um, the relationship of the health enterprise to the university. Uh, one interpretation of the current report is that this has been kicked down the road. The relationship between A&R and the wider university. The Senate in the early 2000s vigorously caused for that to be re-examined and redefined. What will the current task force uh, tell us? Equalization of per-student funding across the campuses. Well, we got that fixed with funding streams. Uh, but all the fiscal pressures that emerged exactly at that time uh, have meant that per-student uh, funding across the campuses is uh, extremely unequal. Diversity of the student body, diversity of the faculty body. Thank you, President, for your initiatives. Membership of the Senate. This goes back to the very beginning. Academic freedom again and again, uh, particularly in the current political environment. The undersized role of academic graduate education, particularly graduate academic degrees in our research university, non-resident students. Uh, these are not new issues. These are issues that have been resurfacing every four, five, six uh, years uh, uh, since uh, the very beginning. So are these issues evolving? Uh, do inherent tensions bubble up? Uh, were prior efforts wrong-minded? Or were they too correct and simply too limited and not forceful enough in their implementation? Uh, these are questions I think we need to answer. Uh, particularly, maybe problematic, have been efforts to provide long-term budgetary planning and budgetary prioritization. Um, I quote, the primary challenge to the university and its system of shared governance is to prevent the budgetary exigencies of California's failing political economic system from destroying the fundamental values that have served as the bricks and mortar of what has become one of the world's preeminent research and teaching universities. I think that was from you, Dan. Um, UCPB, Planning and Budget, the Committee of Planning and Budget, and I think the budget, budget, faculty's involvement in the budget does go back to the very, very beginning and was in place well before the, the Berkeley uh, Revolution, which uh, upgraded it and also added what is now uh, USEP. Um, but UC Planning and Budget has, over the years, produced a series of remarkable reports. The Choices Report, the Cuts Report, the Futures Report. These laid out the issues and the directions believed necessary, but nothing happened. The Gould Commission on the Future may be similar. Uh, compacts with governors, so we complain about this governor, but no. Uh, compacts between four or five governors and the university ended up uh, being uh, negated. 
The university's approach to declining state support, I personally believe we've got to take the high road. We've got to use the language of our mission, not simply muddle through as maybe we have been in the habit of doing. In 2011, uh, a resolution said that budgetary cuts had to be met with tuition increases. Uh, And this certainly hasn't happened. Um, Governmental interference in the internal operations of the university, uh, again and again, but particularly in the last couple of years with line-iteming of UCOP, line-iteming of UC Path, uh, and so on. Um, So we haven't really, as a university, and maybe as a Senate, been very successful in long-term planning. Um, But the administration is only one of the three uh, cornerstones of university governance. Uh, the other is the board, third corner is, of course, the Board of Regents. And as John mentioned, the Constitution was changed in the 1970s to admit faculty and students to the board. Now, it's really clear that those new members of the board have not been treated equally to the other appointed or ex officio members of the board. We have seen progress made in recent years, uh, but maybe this is a re- reversion. Uh, to the norm uh, rather than real progress. Uh, Regents have been invited to attend council uh, again in recent years. This was a practice in in past years. And certainly the chair of the Board of Regents has uh, reached out to Senate leadership more than in recent years. But the relationship between the Senate and the Board of Regents has certainly room for improvement. The relationships between the three academic Senates through ICAS Uh, ICAST has been very effective in exchanging ideas and and information, but not very effective in generating policy or common positions for joint advocacy. Joint meetings between the Senate and the Council of Chancellors and Council of Vice-Chancellors. I've been at some of these. Uh, They were not very productive. It was a ceremony rather than a joint meeting. Uh, Maybe that's the reason why uh, they were suspended. But the occasional, only occasional intersection of academic council and council of chancellors, uh, we can do better than that, I think. Certainly, the Senate has provided balance and stability in times of crisis. I'm quoting again. The events of the past few years show how troubling it is when the regents and others lack confidence in the office of the president. Uh, but they also show the stabilizing power of the Senate in working closely with both the regents and the administration. Senate Chair Brown, 2008, but again, equally applicable now. Conversely, when confidence was lost in the Board of Regents, also in 2008, the Senate provided stability and balance. So this balance and stability in times of crisis and ancient crises were also alluded to has been an important contribution. We faculty, we look broadly across all divisions, all schools, all departments through the lens of our three-part mission and with a very long view. Our arc is 30, 40, 50 plus years. We take the long view. A beleaguered administrator is often forced, put in the position of taking a much shorter view But our long view is invaluable in navigating either near or far. The Senate 
providing validity through the collective experience and analysis, providing legitimacy through consensus. It provides that unifying role among the administration, its various branches, campuses, and within departments, the regions, and the campuses. The university must have a very strong center. I think the Senate supports that center. The Senate cannot solve the big problems without the willing partnership of the administration or the regents, but it has a responsibility to light that path, and it must point the direction with the full force of its conviction, not pull its bunches, not hold back. It must be proactive, but it must also be persuasive in its interactions with the administration and the Board of Regents. I believe that the simple public mission of the university should be at the forefront of all public discussions, and that can help us build for a distant future. Uh, Thank you for your consideration. I want you to know that my mother, who would be, I don't know, 100 or 105 right now, she was a Berkeley graduate. And uh, uh, she very much hoped that uh, I would appreciate it as much as she did. And I did, but I went to Stanford. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And uh, and, uh, my family has been part of California since the gold rush. And I love uh, the history that John shows and the history that I know also from my parents, both of them, and from now my own long life. Um, And I really appreciated, John, the history, and uh, also laying out of issues and topics and all. Uh, I do want to start with an anecdote, and it is the following, which is in 1999, I had been a university professor at four different universities, But I was, at that time, ending on August 31st my role as the Academic Council Chair. So you can see that I'd had that big picture, very much Senate picture. The very next day, I became a dean at UCLA. And the person who was coming after me joked to me about the transition, saying I'd gone over to the dark side, And didn't I know that being dean was only one letter different than dead? Okay? (laughs) Now, I do want to point out that that person is in the room, and that person became an administrator himself (laughs) right afterwards. Uh, but, um, But those of us here today are certainly familiar with the shibboleth underlying the joke. That is, that the faculty are somehow great and pure, and the administrators are difficult and whatever, you know? Uh, And there is no room for that belief if UC is going to continue into a future where we are a great public research university. And there certainly is no room for that belief if we are actually going to have a strong shared governance system and have a system that works well for the university. In the comments I make, I am uh, focusing on academic administrators and faculty senate people. 
and I certainly agree with Shane that the regions are very important, but I couldn't cope with more than those two things. Uh, and I do think that they have a different kind of sharing that is necessary if it's going to work than when you get to the regions. All right, so uh, what I will say is that I've been uh, both a faculty member, as you've heard, and an academic administrator. And as either one, a faculty member or an academic administrator, know it or not, one lives with shared governance. Many of what the examples that John gave and things uh, in SP1 and that Shane talked about, those are all shared governance things. They are not entirely any one side, organization, whatever, uh, purview. Mm -hmm. And it does vary. There are certain things that are very much more the Senate's part than an administrator's part. And an administrator has only the capacities to advise or maybe withhold um, money and space, you know. But you don't have too much else. And then there are other things where it's much more on the other side. But if we're not doing it together, we are doing much less than we could for the university and the people in it. And when I thought about what I wanted to say beyond that, I decided that I would um, uh, recognize my time limits, which I'm definitely meeting, and uh, recognize also that all of you are very familiar with UC, UC administration, and shared governance, and the Academic Senate. So I've identified a few recommendations uh, that I want to make for things that we, in a shared governance two-body perspective, can do and I believe should do either do or do more of or do better with in the short run. And they are things not like the budget, which we cannot manage to get enough money. Money is a big problem. Um, but there are things that I think we do have more opportunity as academic administrators and faculty senate on the campus and at OP, we have more opportunity to do. I'm going to do six of them, believe me, and I'm going to call them one, two, three, but it's not a countdown from six to the top one. It's just that if I say a number, it signals better. This is a different idea, but I'll just say different idea, one, whatever. All right. My first two recommendations really are driven by um, UC's budget difficulties and the fact that we have been defunded in many ways from the state. It doesn't look like it's coming back. And the other things that we've tried to do, we have difficulty getting far enough with them and or difficulty having them benefit all the campuses reasonably equally. All right? But it's a reality that we have to uh, deal with. And one thing that I think really needs to be done, the budgets for the Senate on the campus and at OP, they come from the administrators. And the administrators and need to think about what do we mean by shared governance, what is going to be effective shared governance, and what does that mean about the resources for the Senate office on the campus or up here. I worked here uh, on both sides of the, that budget, and I worked when, I, when Duncan Melichamp was chair. Uh, he made me responsible for figuring out what every campus Senate office should have as a minimum 
um, either funding or staffing, access to staff. So I spent a lot of time with it. And we cannot expect things to be well done if we don't have an agreement about what they are and don't provide the access to resources that allows us to do it. That's the same issue that we have with our growing undergraduate education, but it is very much also an issue, particularly for the Senate. And I want to say that the administration should be really paying attention to what do they need in order to do the job that we need them to do, and then how does that get resourced? So that's first recommendation, which can be handled, right? The second, which is related, is that both the Senate and the administration on the campuses and at OP need to vigorously and continuously seek to do away with bureaucracy that is of our own making. And we make a lot of it and we keep a lot of it. As John has said, we have a very complex system and we often handle that by having everybody put their toe in all the way along and all the way across and all that. And when you do that, and I'm talking now from uh, working on the compendium. I created How many of you know what the compendium is? Yeah? I created it. When I was a Senate member, because there was so much concern about how long it took us to do everything, and from the campuses also, some things about why in the H should the system-wide be telling us what to do. Um, and it was, uh, it was an effort to streamline, to allow for faster and very fast activity. It was also a, an exercise in power. Who gets the last word and why? And when do they have to express it and why and all that? It was power. I also was uh, fortunate or unfortunate enough to do the first revision and I think maybe the third or fourth revision. And I will say that in each of those, all of the parties relaxed quite a bit and also put more things down on the campus with the opportunity that it could come up, for instance, undergraduate degrees. If the system-wide, if USEP ever wanted to, they could always ask and it would have to come up. But not everything had to come. So there's been that sort of uh, devolution. And for better or worse, I think for better, um, the faculty have not given away their prerogatives. They're still there. They're managed a little differently. And we need to do lots of that, not little, lots, so we're not hurting ourselves. Third recommendation uh, starts with a little preamble, which is despite periodic efforts by some to secede from the UC Union, none have left, and the system continues. And I think that will be our future, and it is probably the right future. But it behooves all of us to accept this as the future, if it's going to be that, and then strive both to make the most of what the system can offer and at the same time understand and honor the differing needs and circumstances of the campuses, as well as their shared set of goals. They all have the same set of high-quality teaching, research, public service, all of them. All right. The fourth one is uh, probably the one that is the most like one of those um, all-university meetings that John talks about as being so um, useful. 
And it is that the Senate and the administration ensure that doctoral and graduate professional education are vibrant realities on each campus, even as UC is choosing to substantially increase its undergraduate enrollment. There are reasons we are increasing undergraduate enrollment, but we will cease to be a preeminent public research university if we do not have adequate and vibrant doctoral education and certain kinds of graduate professional education. And we will not be able either to attract and keep the faculty that we need for research if we don't have those programs. So that, I think, is a very uh, important thing to do and much more like one of the system-wide uh, things. And the sixth recommendation, and not number one, but uh, recommendation, is that um, takes is based on the fact that in the Senate, the chairs of the Senate on the campus and in OP and of the Senate committees mostly serve one or two years. They don't serve long term. Some do, but most don't. I come from UCLA where there's churn every year, and that. Uh, has some strong points to it. It also leaves faculty uh, able to step in and also then step back to more research or teaching or whatever it is. But it also can mean that the incoming chair is not adequately prepared for the job and, most importantly, that there can be tremendous discontinuities from one chair to the next. And um, I, I think I have enough time. I looked at my time again this morning. I think I have enough time for one other anecdote, which is when I was the system-wide chair, I think, no, or the UCLA chair, I was flying back from up here on Southwest, and the woman who was the uh, UCLA provost at the time was talking to me. And she said, uh, and I never forget, she said, well, Amy, because... I'm always naive in certain ways about how pure everybody is, okay? And, um, and she said, what, Amy, don't you know? We look at who the next chair is going to be, and some years we decide we'll just tackle that topic in the next year, probably. Okay? <laughs> so they just, they know they can avoid. Uh, but they shouldn't know that, because truly if it is a shared governance system, it, we would be able to have disagreements and to work those out one way or another. And she would have, every year, taken what are the most important things and worked with them, with the faculty and the Senate. Okay? But that isn't what she did. She just knew she could wait. Uh, but I have also seen some tremendously erratic changes from year to year. And that happens with administrators, too, but they tend to have longer tenure. So that's my sixth and last recommendation. Uh, they are all mine. I didn't check with anybody about them. They are a range of things. They are really focused on shared governance, which belongs both to the administration and to the Senate. It does not belong just to one, and it won't work well if it's just really one. It won't be strong. And these are admonitions that are probably, um, that are not what we're not doing, but what we are doing, what we should do, and also a sign of um, the times that we live in, which are so um, pernicious, I think. Uh, if we're going to sustain strong, shared governance, 
that, is, that works and that is good for the university, here are my exhortations. We must continue to create and pursue shared visions for the UC system, for each campus, and for the meaning of shared governance. John's Muse has some of that in it, too. We also must continue to treat others with respect and goodwill. Many of us will be around together for a long time, and it doesn't do to have really horrible experiences that you would like to get over but can't, let's say that. Uh, and then finally, if we, uh, con- we must continue also to disagree constructively. We will disagree. And it isn't just disagreement between an administrator and a faculty Senate member. It's among the Senate people also. It's around the campuses. It's different administrators. We have to disagree uh, a lot of the time because that's where we start and we come from different perspectives. We need to be able to do it constructively. We need to be able to figure out how to move from where we are to a better place. And if we must really fight, we should fight fair, whatever that means. My parents used to send me and my brother out with boxing gloves, but um, they said, we don't want you to do it in the house. Get outside. Here are your gloves. Uh, all right. They stopped that. They had two pairs of kids, and they stopped it with the next pair, but my brother and I knew how to box. Um, all right. What I want to do is I want to thank you very much uh, for asking me to participate. It's been, for me, wonderful to think about the topics and then to be listening and be with all of these people who know so much, do so much, and are so much to be admired. Thank you very much. And we've got 30 minutes for um, robust discussion. Uh, John, do you want to come back up? Because yeah. No, you should come, John. There are going to be, all right, when you get to the first question, you're up here. Okay. <laughs> George. I want to thank, oh, George. <laughs> I want to thank John and the rest of the panelists for a really informative and thought-provoking discussion. I think it was extremely interesting, and I'm so glad that we did this uh, and had this topic today. But I wanted to ask a question. I was thinking about the role of the Academic Senate in other systems of education. And just to give an impression, which you may or may not agree with, it certainly was my sense as Senate Chair of UC that the CSU system, Academic Senate, was remarkably ineffectual relative to UC. Uh, And I pondered that a lot and wondered for years whether this was due to unionization, the fact that the faculty were unionized, or whether it was due to the fact that UC has shared governance encompassed within uh, the standing orders of the regions and, and a role for the academic senate in the state constitution. But I would also note that the community college system, at least during my time, had a relatively strong and robust academic senate as well, which kind of belied that theory. So I was wondering whether or not you have thoughts on the relative success of shared governance in the three systems of public higher education and why they might have evolved differently. (laughs) Yes, yes. No, 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 come on. No, come on. It's right up here, John. 
At great risk, George, I'll offer the opinion that it's the standing orders of the regions. There's not another educational institution in the country that has specific delegations of authority under which the faculty acts uh, on matters that are critically important to the faculty. I think we are so fortunate um, that, that the regents in the 20s had the wisdom uh, to put those rules in place. Yeah, I'd say so as well. I think CSU is definitely the dynamics of a union changes the dynamics of the commitment or understanding of the of faculty in the management of the institution itself. And I think, you know, you see wherever there is, I'm not an anti-union person, but in terms of the academic world, I think when you do see uh, active unions, everything is about benefits and salaries, and it isn't about the larger management issues of the institution. You know, beyond what uh, Dan said, absolutely. Having it codified is a significant uh, uh, development in the UC system, and it's so historical as, as well. But at the same time, I will say that, you know, there are some pretty good universities that don't have the same level of codified shared governance that do okay, like, you know, MIT or Stanford and or there are some other places. So the dynamics are different a bit, I think. I think CSU, though, also just the lack of funding, the incredible, I would argue, the workload is crazy in the CSU system. The faculty teach too much. They absolutely do. They also have problems with Everything was supposed to be a small classroom experience, and they've never had a full transition to a lecture structure to change the dynamics of some of that. So that, and I think the leadership has never respected the faculty in a way that it, that it probably needed to be done. There were major mistakes made over the years. CSU is a little different. I mean, uh, the community colleges are different, and I'm sure others can maybe remark on all of this, but... Uh, the community colleges, I'm not sure how effective they are. I guess they're effective because there's this local structure. There is no, the chancellor's office is relatively weak. There's not a lot going on. It's all localized. So my sense would be, although you may know different, George, is that it really kind of depends on where you are. If you're at Foothill De Anza, where they have lots of money uh, and they have great transfer programs and it's socioeconomically, uh, you know, maybe the dynamics are different there. And at the system-wide level, you know, it's, I think, kind of a mixed bag that I've seen over time. So I would add that uh, I, I, I'm loud enough. Um, I would add that uh, the fact that the, the legislature has a lot of authority over both of those other two groups makes a big difference, too, that you don't, they don't feel like they can be that independent. And they have to implement a lot of things they don't want to implement. The other, the other difference is that the um, CSU Academic Senate is not in practice a faculty senate. Um, administrators serve in the Senate. They get elected to the Senate. Um, it's a much more mixed bag so that, for instance, when I've spoken to – you're technically in the Senate, but you're not – it's not like you're going and voting at legislative assembly meetings – and you're not sitting in as a voting member on committees. Um, I was at Fullerton a couple of years ago to speak on some issues, and they were in the middle of a, of a faculty senate election, and part of the problem was that their deans were running and their assistant deans were telling people they had to vote for them, and they were getting elected. Um, and therefore, it's simply not an independent body in the same way. Perfect. 
I had a couple of comments. Um, and first, unlike MIT, we're a public trust with a public mission. And the University of California has been uniquely successful in providing support for the public, for the people, access, as well as with research. So none of the other R1 universities do both of these things. I think we can do both of these things uh, because of our public trust, because of our mission, and because of the involvement in the Senate and university governance. Uh, I would also say that uh, currently the faculty at the community colleges are extremely unhappy with their inability uh, to prevent intermediate algebra from being removed as a graduation requirement uh, for the establishment of an online college without consultation uh, and for their new funding model, which effectively makes the rich richer and the poor poorer. Uh, so... Uh, it's not just CSU that have difficulties with governance, but uh, certainly the community college system also. Thank you. Cool, cool. Um, I'm Kumkum Bhavnani. I am, it says on my label, UC Office of the President. I am the vice chair of the Academic Senate. So uh, just so that uh, you don't read my label too carefully, I want to thank you all, of course, for the wonderful presentations and want to say something that I say in my classes is that we look at history in order to understand what to do about the future. Yes, a cliche. If you ever are looking for a cliche, come to me. I'll find it for you. Um, so how can the Senate, how can we look to our future? Of course, we're all doing that all the time. But I think some of the things we do as faculty, we're members of Senate, but we're faculty, and we are passionate about our research, our public service, our teaching, all those things. So how about if we also, for in the future, think about how do we teach critical thinking, for example, have a faculty-wide discussion. This is not just for the arts and humanities. This is, in fact, for engineering. You cannot be a good engineer. You cannot make new things, of course, as you know, unless you think critically. How about if we work out how as faculty we can work on public issues. These public issues we know about, you know, poverty, food, health. These are things that are critical, not just to the state, but to the world, as we all know. And how can we as faculty have a set of meetings that allows us to put forward suggestions for the university to act on. We take the lead. How can we, I just do one more example, which I wrote down, but of course it's obviously not as important. It is important, it's the, uh, is diversity. Um, you know, I'm making a bad joke. How do we as faculty work on issues of diversity? This is not just policies, this is thinking and looking at the administration, looking at how we let the administration sometimes appoint a white man when there are equally qualified other people. How does that happen? How can we as faculty talk about this, looking to the future? And another, the final example, because I know we're short on time, Mary, I've used up those three minutes you talked about. Um, 
How can we talk about the University of California as a global university? What does it mean? Not just talking about, you know, non-resident students and all those things. What does a global university mean? So I would like to urge all of us, as we sit in our senates, that we also work on these. I don't want to put aside our role in actual governance, no way. But I also want to say, if we develop ideas on this, we will take the lead and we might be able to stop future Ward Connollys. Who knows? Thank you. Thank you. Other questions, comments? Oh, no. Where, where? Oh, I'm sorry. Hello? Okay, so uh, if we accept that the University of California is a one system, which I think we should, then how can the shared governance system, the faculty and the administration, make sure that there is an equalization of funding per student uh, across the different campuses to ensure that all students get the same quality education, no matter at what campus you're at? I think it's a fundamental challenge that requires all of us. Um, uh, uh, how do we, uh, and, and I, I am resonant um, with, with, with one side of the issue of how do we better make our case? And believe me, believe me, there is very little else that we in the office of the president are thinking about on a day-to-day basis than how do we make the better case for ourselves. And it is not that we've only waited to this moment to do that. I've been in this job for, for one year, but uh, I was on the other side, uh, 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 and, 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 and Officer President was wrestling with this. This is not new, okay? Uh, and yet uh, 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 state funding has declined. So this is a fundamental challenge. Uh, it will take all of us both in this room, outside of this room. And, um, uh, but... Uh, if it, I, I, I resonate so much with some of the, well, many, uh, almost everything, uh, Kum Kum, everything that Kum Kum had to say, because on the on the on the academic side of things, uh, I have found that 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 um, there's an old saying, it's an old scripture. It says it says, uh, without a vision, the people perish, and 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 sometimes there needs to be a reinvigoration of the vision of the University of California for what it not only is for the state, but what it can yet do to address abiding challenges that really require a huge heavy lift. Uh, they're, they're, they're not small challenges. They're huge. And if we can provide a tangible vision for how to do that, I do believe that has some hope 
of, re- of, of generating reinvestment. But that's just going to take all of us. That is not going to just take uh, uh, some of us that wear suits and ties, uh, which I do sometimes, uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in the office of the president. It, 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 and, and hats. Uh, I, I, I do. It will take uh, uh, so much more than that. And I, I, would, I would strongly support some effort uh, if, if even it took resources from my office uh, to 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 coalesce uh, uh, some engagement on these future themes, future issues uh, that not only confront the University of California, but will confront the state of, of of California and what role the university can play in addressing those bigger issues. So I'm sorry I talked too long. You, you know I think I didn't... <laughs> you got witnesses. You, you know, an important answer to that question is that we need and we should be supporting a very strong office of the president to make those kinds of allocations happen. I also think that from the standpoint of the Senate, and I think it's part of the answer to the earlier discussion about why the UC Academic Senate is so effective relative to other places. We act through a very strong office of the president because when there is a strong office of the president, the academic senate has a role in formulating policies before they go to the regents. And I think that's very important. Another element of that is the presence of the faculty representative on the board of regents because when we disagree with the president over significant issues, there is always that option of taking that disagreement to the Board of Regents and airing it in a more public forum. But our real strength, as I think I said in my remarks earlier, the Senate can more or less act in the background and formulate those policies with the President before they go to the Board of Regents. So then we become what Amy was talking about, uh, partners with the administration in moving important issues forward. Amy? So I'd like to add uh, off that a different perspective, which is I think that we have to help the campuses that can generate or do generate more resources to see. We need to shift from I'm not getting enough because they all feel that way to uh, what's a benefit, what helps the ones that are generally richer when those that are, quote, poorer are better supported. So when there is more distribution, what's good for everybody under those circumstances? If we can do it that way also, I think that would help. I'm going to use my prerogative to um, ask, John, you're you're doing comparative uh, globally to other universities. Are there any other models uh, globally that... That, would, that are like the one university model, or are we unique? We're unique. I mean, I don't think there's anything <laughs> like it. Uh, you know, you could look at University College London as a structure that had a kind of a system. It's not that you're shaking your head because it isn't the same. No, no, uh, I'm, I'm oh. <laughs> <laughs> you want to talk? <laughs> so, uh, no, it is it's very unusual. And so, you know, you look at the SUNY system. Most multi-campus systems in about something like 75% of all the students in the United States are in multi-campus systems. And throughout the world, there are no equivalents. And they're talking about sometimes these ideas of multi-campus systems, but the United States is unique in that form. And then if you look at them, almost all were formulated in the 50s 
and into the 60s when legislators understood uh, and governors and lawmakers understood that there was tremendous growth and they had to figure out how to coordinate it in some form. So look at CUNY or SUNY. These are all 1950s inventions, so it is unique. Other questions? Hi, everyone. I see lots of friends here today. Um, the Regent Standing Orders and the um, university policies uh, set out an orderly structure for um, who has authority for what. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the point of origin for a new initiative starts in that area. So, um, you know, whether it's admissions or budget, can you talk about the policy generation process uh, with shared governance uh, where the point of origin, or the momentum for an initial policy may be different from where the, uh, the end point is? And maybe with some good or bad examples that, that illustrate the lessons of shared governance there. So I would say that, um, and this actually is something I forgot to say when I was counting, is that we don't do enough to communicate enough. And no matter where it starts, it needs to be engaged with the other parts of the system very rapidly. And I think that is the most important point, is wherever the idea comes from, from a legislature that we have to take seriously or something the president wants or the provost or a campus wants or the senate wants, it has to, at an early stage, get engaged with the other parts of the shared governance system. Because otherwise, you go too far too fast. And the other partners, either appropriately or inappropriately, feel left out or it isn't theirs or they're not going to agree with it. You know, So for me, that's the biggest thing. It's not where it starts, but the recognition that early on you have to float it you have to try it out, things like that. The, the, the doctrine of no surprises. Early, no surprises early. Early, <laughs> yes. No, because the, really you can go too far, and then it's very hard to dial it back or make it something different. Yes, George. Um, shared governance is something that's encoded in the uh, standing orders of the regents, uh, where uh, the Senate is uh, delegated uh, certain responsibilities. Um, and beyond that, there seems to be a, what I would call a, a fuzzy notion of shared governance and what exactly uh, needs to be shared and what doesn't have to be shared. And I think from the standpoint of faculty or the Senate, uh, there's a much broader conception of shared governance than what is actually written down in the uh, standing order of the regents. And I'm wondering if anyone has any comments. I see Amy's nodding uh, <laughs> in response. Thank you. Yeah, I had, I had a dean once say, anytime the faculty disagree with me, they say, you're not honoring shared governance. You know, <laughs> if it's clearly in the domain of administration. Amy, do you want to? Oh. Well, one thing I think. Um, that I uh, struggled with when I was uh, the, uh, at UCLA in um, Senate roles 
uh, particularly when I was the chair of the UCLA uh, Senate, is that in many areas, we have the right to consult and to expect to be consulted. But that doesn't mean that we have the power to decide, and it doesn't mean that we, there wasn't consultation if they decide differently. And, uh, and I think that is one of the hardest parts of shared governance. It's not the places where you clearly have authority, but it is all those places where it's more giving advice. And it could work the other way, too, in areas where the Senate has a lot of power. It could be that when you talk to the, the UC provost, for instance, they don't agree, and they give you other points of view, and then the question is, what do you do with that? And I think that's where we have our biggest problems because we, in general, don't want to spend the time to explain where we're coming from and whoever gets to be the final decider, how they decided, and show that they paid attention to the advice, even if then they didn't take it, okay? And, and the, all those things take, take uh, guts, first of all. At least for me, they took guts. Um, and then they take an, an extra step. But that's what I think we need to do more of. And we will never get rid of the areas where consultation is part of what goes on. But we have to get to what does it mean to say that we were fairly consulted and considered. And that, I think, is something that the decision makers should discuss with the people who give advice in advance so that you have a sense of where are the boundaries. Like, for hell, I won't do this, but we could do that or whatever. So consultation, not as just being listened to, but as a response, a valid data-driven response being provided from either side, depending on. I think that's a great note to, to end on, and I want to thank our panelists and our keynote speaker for um, respecting our time constraints. Uh, Robert was uh, encouraging, no, maybe threatening me about uh, staying on time. So thank all of you for a very interesting session. And thank you, Mary. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.